Welcome back to the Syracuse Football Podcast. I'm Stephen Bailey, joined as always by Julian Wiggum. And we are here to break down Syracuse's season. Uh, finished 5-7 and seven after a 39-30 overtime win against Wake Forest on Saturday. Pretty crazy game. A senior class really excited to go out with a win. Kind of a nice moment um, after what was a really disappointing season. And the kind of full scope of the season came back afterward in Dino Baber's press conference where he said more staff changes are coming. So we're obviously going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to take a lot of fan questions. That's what the, most of the show is going to be, and it's going to cover the staff stuff, recruiting, uh, a few other things, some younger players to watch going into next year. Uh, I also want to ask Julian about Trill Williams' strip six. And, like, Trill has been doing this for a long time. He did it in high school. He did it last year against Notre Dame, although he was ruled out of bounds on that play. So... I was curious to get a defensive back's take on it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we get into it, I need you guys to go subscribe to us. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you listen to your podcast on. And if you'd like to purchase advertising, please call Dylan Carpenter at 315-470-6069. All right, let's jump in. Let's start with Trail Julian. Like he, he, Someone asked him in the post-game press conference, how do you do that, <laughs> basically? And he, he kind of smiled and said, well, if I told you, then everyone would be able to do it. But I kind of get the right. feeling that not everybody is able to do it. What makes that so special? I love that answer first because it's not the way that it's typically coached, right? So when you go through your drills, uh, turnover drills, whatever it is, college, NFL, high school, typically a coach will tell you you're going to punch it from underneath, secure the tackle first, and then punch from underneath, or – you try to go for the rip over top, which is what it kind of look, looks like, right? He's always ripping the ball out from over top. But the special thing about Trill, and, uh, you know, this is where I'm like, yo, this, this guy is special, is because I have, I've got maybe five or six missed open field tackles in, over my career, right? I would say three or four of them were because I was trying to do the exact same thing Trill was trying to do and get the rip out, and, of course, I just missed. And lots of other DBs across the country miss as well, and that's why you see sort of missed tackles. But the the charm of it is when he goes in, typically he actually gets – he somehow secures both the tackle and the rip at the exact same time. And that's why I think it's special because of the timing of both. They, they are, it's not where he comes in and he secures the tackle first and then goes for the rip. It's just it's all at the same time, and I think that because he has that kind of timing with it, and because he's able to uh, do everything simultaneously, where he comes in with the rip, and maybe even comes in with the rip a little bit sooner, and then secures the tackle, he has strong enough hand and a forearm where he could just absolutely just rip the ball out because he's usually spinning as he does it. Like if you look at the high school tape and the, uh, the strip six from last weekend, he's spinning as he's taking the ball. So he's not even really securing a tackle. It's more so he's securing the strip. So he grabs the, the, the offensive player at the same time, both hands, and then he's just stripping and spinning, taking the ball away. And I'm like, my goodness, that's just, just such an athletic play because of the angle he takes, uh, the way he meets the offensive player, usually the receiver, and then just having the strength to rip, rip the ball away from another guy who probably has a similar bench press and everything else, just as strong. Uh, so, so that's what makes it special is because he's not coached the same way and he has his own unique take on it and he uses his own athleticism as well. So I think that's a special part of uh, Trill's ability to strip the ball from defenders. And when you can do that as a DB, it, it just adds so much to your game and, and, and how much you can give 
to a secondary because if you think about all the really special and talented defensive backs, uh, at least the ones that I watched, the Tyron Matthew, uh, Patrick Peterson, uh, Charles Woodson, those guys always had the ability to take the ball away uh, through fumbles and, and, and forced fumbles as well as interceptions and TBU. So uh, I think a lot of DBs try to add that to their game. Um, you see it on Saturdays and Sundays, but it usually ends up being missed tackles. But for Trill, man, he's really special because he's really perfected the timing of both wrapping up the defender and also getting the strip out and then using his athleticism to just take it, stay on his feet, and take it the other way. Yeah, that timing's really interesting. Obviously, I didn't play defensive back at any level, so it's not something I've tried to do. But just watching him, it looks like there's so many moving pieces, and he gets yep. he gets his arm and his elbow in between the ball and the player. Um, so his coordination has always been really impressive. He had a, another highlight in high school where he was on the on his back in the end zone and reached up and, and caught a pass. So, I mean, his freakish <laughs> hand-eye coordination um, combined with obviously being a great athlete. So that was really exciting. It was cool to see. Uh, it was a fun moment. Um, I, I think everyone within the program enjoyed it. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes after that, it was kind of already, all right, kind of on to, on to next year. Not for the seniors, but for the younger guys. I've seen, you know, I think Josh Black tweeted something along those lines. Like, it's start time to get working. Chris Elmore and Nikeem Johnson were doing either PT or, um, or some kind of training today. I saw him posting about it. So, you know, those guys are already engaged in next year, and, Frankly, this is uh, this is a really important time for Dino Babers. Uh, early signing period is in 15 days, December 18th. He has said he's going to make more staff changes. You know, as we kind of said, I, I think my expectation, and you know, Julian, you kind of said this too, is that the staff changes probably come after early signing day. But you know, Dino yeah. is working on getting kind of all of his ducks in a row. A lot of the questions touch on this, so I'm not going to go into too much depth. But in short, I, I think he's probably looking at a lot of guys. For defensive coordinator, I think he's casting a wide net there, whereas on offense, my expectation is he's going to want to bring in people with familiarity with his system, be it Philip Montgomery if he leaves Tulsa or Kendall Bryles and Randy Clements if, if they don't stay at Florida State. Uh, I, I wonder how Matt Johnson's doing if you're wondering for a guy who, who played quarterback in the, in the, the system here. So um, that's just kind of my very brief expectation to how Dino is, is – approaching his staff situation. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out and, you know, if any assistants are leaving, well, who did they recruit and, and how good are those recruits and, and all those things. I also think you need to bring in guys who can recruit. There's too much dead weight on the staff, and I think Dino knows that too. So really interesting time coming up. Uh, I'm going to dive into fan questions a little earlier because I know a lot of them overlap with these things. Um First question comes from Kyle Fussner, my roommate. Very important question. Is Aaron a top five character on The Office? I know this is not SU football related, but this is a, a heated argument um, that we have had. I'm a big Aaron fan. I actually used to not really enjoy her very much. I kind of put her in with Gabe and kind of that later, that late, that late show crowd. But her facial expressions are the best of anyone on the cast. So... I like her a lot. She falls just outside my top five. I'm going Michael, Jim, Dwight, Kevin. Got to put Kevin in for the chili scene and for the dead turtle scene uh, and Creed because Creed is just ridiculous. So that's my top five um, in no particular order, I will say, but I think there's a lot of good ones. And I appreciate Dan Bartlett chiming in. Kelly is not a top five character. I'm sorry. Um, although Mindy Kaling is awesome. 
All right, that's that. Let's get to football. James Austin, always appreciate him chiming in with some good questions. Uh, first, it was great listening to you guys this season. Uh, thanks for listening. With athletic tight ends and an offensive line that likes to go downhill, do you see more of the running game next year? Yeah, I mean, I think any offensive coach will tell you they want to be able to run the ball. Um, I think the tight ends really are a strength. Uh, they went to 12 more as the year went on with Luke Benson in the game, and his versatility was really helpful. They would make him the primary receiver in a lot of those um, those 12 sets. They ran him into the flat on their double slant play, uh, a deep corner I think they hit against Clemson. So I, I think you want to be able to do both out of those, and, and if you can get a good matchup for Luke, you will throw it out of that. But I think the offensive line has meshed a little bit. I wrote a column about that yesterday. They've kind of got a core four guys coming back, and Aaron Service, Carlos Vettorello, Dakota Davis, and Matthew Bergeron. They need to f- figure out a fifth guy. Uh, they had a lineman from the University of Florida visit for the game, Chris Bleich. We'll see what he decides to do. I believe he's going to be a January guy, um, so maybe he's someone who will come and be that fifth guy. Patrick Davis also there. But in short, I, yeah, I do think they're going to want to try and run the ball more. The backfield is obviously very good. Abdul Adams coming back, Jarvion Howard, and... Juar Jordan, a really exciting freshman, uh, and he did redshirt. Smart move by the staff not to play him. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll try and run the ball a little bit more. And, I mean, frankly, their inability to run the ball this year is, is why they had a lot of problems. And uh, it's why Tommy DeVito got sacked a bajillion times. And, you know, the passing game struggle, to me, I think it, it all starts up front and being able to run the ball uh, opens things up. Another question from James. How likely is it that we target bigger DBs similar to Iffy and Trill so we can play a little more physical on the outside? The safety out of Canada, that's Ben LeBros, is more of the DB we will need moving forward. What do you think, Julian? It's kind of hard to say until we know what scheme they're running, but how do you think bigger DBs might help them be a little bit more aggressive on the perimeter? Uh, I anticipate them sticking to the body tape of uh, Trill Williams and Effie Melifonwu just because, uh, one, in, in their initial scheme, scheme when it was the Tampa 2, the idea was the bigger your corners, the smaller the zone gaps get. I'll never forget how when I came in for my pro day and all the new coaches that come in, Coach Babers and all those guys, I was walking by and I truly felt like a runway model, the way they were looking at me, like, yo, who is this guy? And it's just because of the length. And finally, when I got to talk to Coach E, he was saying the same thing. Like, we really want to get, you know, longer, taller, bigger corners because it just helps with our defensive philosophy in terms of how we play zone, um, how our safeties play zone. I think the, the biggest thing uh, for Syracuse is less of the corners. I think those would be fine. Like you're all, I think more and more bigger corners are starting to come out of high school because they're realizing, oh, there's money at corner rather than playing safety. Uh, but I think the big thing for Syracuse, at least in terms of their secondary, is finding bigger safeties who can come downhill and tackle. I think that's been an uh, ailment to Syracuse's defense for maybe the last three to four years. Uh, there's been so many big runs, um, and that's because you don't have safeties tackling. You don't have DBs who can tackle. Um, I think Chris Frederick was a solid guy on the outside. I think even Iffy and obviously Trill would, would do a decent job on the perimeter. But I think the biggest thing for Syracuse is finding bigger, stronger safeties uh, who can come downhill with a linebacker mentality that will take the proper angle uh, to actually hit somebody. I, I, I've grown tired of watching the 50-plus yard runs, and I think the Syracuse defense has too, and a lot of that comes from having linebackers out of their gap and safeties who aren't willing to tackle. So. I, that's my biggest thing when it comes to the secondary, is finding those big guys 
uh, who are willing to come downhill and hit somebody. Because I, I, uh, I, while um, Andre Cisco is incredibly talented in terms of taking the ball away, I think his knock and his scouting report will be his tackling. And I think that on the other side, uh, with Evan Foster departing, um, I, don't, I don't even think you're losing anything in terms of hitting somebody. But they need to bring somebody in who can actually do that. And uh, I, I think that that would be a real help from a secondary perspective, and as well as coaching, coaching, coaching guys to come downhill. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest improvement when it comes to recruiting and Syracuse defense, just finding that those secondary guys who can come downhill, take the correct angle, and hit somebody. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I know a lot of the attention is going to be on the front six or front seven, depending on what they come out in, but that secondary loses two guys. Obviously, you've got Trail, Iffy, and Cisco are growing and and I think Cisco, you know, he didn't have the luxury of redshirting, so he really had to try and put on weight between last season and this yep. season. I think he'll try and do that again and you know that might help him a little bit coming downhill. Uh, Eric Coley is right now the guy who's probably slated to fill in for Evan Foster. We'll see if Devon Clark competes. He didn't travel to Duke or Louisville and wasn't dressed against Wake Forest. We'll see if Cam Jonas can get into it, and you know maybe they go out and bring in a grad transfer, bring in uh, a JUCO guy. I'm curious to see what Cornelius Nunn can bring. He redshirted this year, not a bigger, harder hitting safety, more of a playmaker, ball hawk type. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see where they fit him in. Maybe he comes in at nickel, and you keep Trilla as your field corner with Iffy on the boundary. I don't know, but um, they got a lot of talent there. I'm kind of curious how it all maps out. Uh, Jeff Perrot. Cuse won two or three to close the season. They looked messy doing it, but they did it. Is that something to build off of? I think it maybe with the players and the younger guys who got opportunities in those games, like the, like Jawar Jordan getting that experience uh, against du- uh, Duke and, and Louisville. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something. Hey, you know, I went out and played. I've got a chance. Uh, I can do this. I'm more motivated in the offseason. Matthew Bergeron, uh, the offensive line in general. Yes, I think from a player perspective, absolutely. If they're going to flip flip half of the coaching staff, it's really hard to say it carries over there. Um, so I, I think kind of on an individual level, yes. And I think from from a fan base perspective, you can kind of see what Dino wanted out of some of those positions this year because they played a little better down the stretch and really primarily the offensive line, but even the secondary coming up with some turnovers. Um, so yes and no, basically. Uh, Jeff Glotzer, do you see Michael Jones, Lee Koba, and Jeff Canton as ready to step up to form the linebacker core? Where do you see Tyrell Richards lining up next year? I, th- I think all four of those guys are in the mix, along with Juan Wallace. Uh, Michael is the most likely to play a lot. Uh, Kendall Coleman spoke really highly of his leadership and his maturity. Um, so that's, to me, that, that carries some weight. And obviously, he played the most after Andrew Armstrong and Lakeem Williams. He was the third linebacker in 4-3. When Armstrong was out for the Wake Forest game, he played the whole game. So I think he is the most likely to start next year. Koba is really exciting to watch, very explosive. Um guy who goes for the big hit really physical he was he was fun to watch on um special teams as was jeff can and that dude is huge uh, i think he's like a year and a half older than his classmates coming from canada uh, i don't i don't have it up in front of me but i mean i think he's probably the biggest linebacker in the room and was this year so um 
I think schematically, that's the big question. Whenever you bring someone down from Canada, and Dino has kind of said this, usually it takes two years to get all of your assignments down. But the fact that they got him out there on specials this year, and then he actually came on for one snap against Wake Forest, I believe due to an due to an injury. So he's someone who was close to playing, and I think if he can get the playbook down, I think he might have the highest ceiling of any of those guys. Um, what are you kind of looking for this spring, Julian? How are you think? How do you think those guys are kind of kind of be assessed by who whoever the new defensive coordinator is? Yeah, I think the biggest thing. So whenever a new coach comes in, uh, there's always from on the outside staff where there's like weird people in the academic or whoever else, like oh, your, your first impression matters the most. That's how your coach is going to remember you in the spring. Uh, that's how they'll uh, kind of evaluate you going forward, and you're going to have to constantly fight any negative connotations about you off of what you do during spring workouts and spring practice, right? So I think for this group, the biggest thing and what's going to be a, a very large uh, motivator in terms of how they're evaluated is really going to be determinant. And I'm sorry it's not most definite, but it's going to be determinant on what kind of scheme does this guy run and then how well, literally how well do they exit? So for us, it was when Coach Bullock came in, uh, his thing was, I want hitters. And that was for his linebackers and his safeties, guys that came down here like we were just talking about. I want guys that aren't afraid to hit the hole. They don't duck tackles. They don't drop their shoulder. They have technique, all these different things, right? In the first day in, uh, I remember Dyshawn Davis and Durrell were Coach Buller's favorite players because they did exactly what he asked, and they were also exactly his type, kind of prototypical size for the linebacker and safe positions, right? So I think it's going to be a very similar aspect here when it comes to this year's defense and what guys are looking for, especially in that linebacker, defensive line, and secondary areas. It's just how do they fit in terms of do they already match the size and speed expectations of their new defensive coordinator? And then are they filling out the defensive philosophies that he's trying to bring in? Is he someone who he wants defensive uh, defensive edge rushers to be, you know, pass rushers? All of a sudden he'll love Kendall Coleman, Al Robinson, those kind of guys, right? Or is he someone for the linebackers? Is he someone who really values them being smart, knowing where to be, not necessarily always hitting the gap, but just knowing their responsibility? Oh, maybe he loves uh, Armstrong. I don't, I mean, you know, just whoever fits that category of what his philosophy is, I think that's what will put them, give them a leg up in the spring. Uh, and then just going forward, those guys are constantly being productive. Uh, it's tough to project uh, where a guy will be or how things will play out. But typically when a new guy comes in, as a player, you really want to try your best to, you know, be yourself, be what kind of player you are, but embody the philosophy of whatever that new coach's uh, scheme is. So for these defensive guys, whatever he comes in and tells you he's looking for, you've got to actively pursue that. You've got to try to mold yourself into that kind of player because that's how you get on the field. That's how you make a good first impression, and that's how you kind of give yourself the best chance to get on and stay on the field. Yeah, and just a last quick thing. 
I don't have a strong feel for Tyrell Richards. It's going to depend on, like Julian just basically said, who the new DC is. Um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity at both spots, but defensive end, if I were to guess or just kind of my two cents, it would probably be where I'd lean toward. I think Kingsley Jonathan will probably step in as a starter there with Alton Robinson and Kendall Coleman going. And then Tyrell's probably as, as proven a number two guy as you have, uh, although I'm, I'm really excited to see how Steve Linton develops, uh, especially during the offseason, if he can put on a little bit of weight. He's a really springy guy out there. Um, so, yeah, good, good question. That linebacker group is going to be really, really interesting. This is probably the first stretch of a couple years where they won't have to replace their starters again. You know, these guys should be able to play for a couple years if it's Jones, Koba, uh, and or can. Uh, Q Sports 44, I want to know if there are more chairs or people in the world. Uh, <laughs> I guess people? I don't know. I, I don't have a strong feeling about it. Do you, what do you think, Julian? Chairs or people? I'm going to go with people um, just because people have to create the chairs. And uh, I, I want to believe that there are uh, much more people in need of the chair than actual production. That didn't make any sense, I think. So I'm going to stick to football now. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I actually was. I was having a beer with a buddy, and we were trying to decide if a chair or a table was invented first. So these, these, these are good questions, but maybe not exactly the place for them. Um, but after this year, I, I can appreciate it. At least no one's asking anyone to, uh, to sacrifice anyone else during the off season, <laughs> which is great. Uh, James Brown, what would you be emphasizing in filling out the rest of the recruiting class position wise? And what sort of balance between high school, Juco and transfer makes sense oh, to you? Steven, let me have this one. Steven, let me have this one. Please, okay. Please, All right. Please. All right. I'm going to call on Fat Julian. Fat kid. I, if I'm Coach Babers, my first meeting for my staff, recruit fat kids. I want the fattest, strongest, biggest kids you can find on the offensive line. I'm never having that problem again, ever. And, I'm, and this may not be – Stephen, you could go ahead and take the rest of the question because you'll have a much more precise answer, I'm sure, than I will. But right here, I, love, I like, like the question because I think the biggest key for college football programs like Syracuse, is you, it's hard to sustain success because depth across the front, like whether it's offense, defense, is just not the same as it is at, at an Alabama and Auburn and USC, all these blue-chip programs, right? So for Syracuse, this year we saw it on the offensive line, just not having the depth to rise to the level that we thought they would be at this year. So if I'm Coach Babers, my biggest thing is finding a way to, A, make sure we have the proper fat kids on the roster because when your offensive line fails, your team is done. But then going forward, it's just a matter of having the correct depth. And it's going to be hard for Syracuse because they're always going to recruit the three-star kids and being ranked between uh, 40 and 60th in, in their recruit. That's just how Syracuse is going to be. They're always going to be in that tier. So – when it comes to recruiting, I think the biggest key for Syracuse, it's, it's more of a defensive style, but I think it's, it's incredibly important for Syracuse to maintain success, especially when they're an offensive emphasis kind of team, is having the proper fat kids up front that can step in, say an injury happens, because depth across the front is going to be hard to maintain that athletic on the outside, but I think they can manage that. You know, there's tons of athletes out here. But having the right fat kids who can come in and block and maintain the trenches for you is going to be the biggest key for Syracuse. Any any kind of mid-tier team 
in that power five, but still kind of middling. I think it's, it's important to be able to recruit cross front offensive and defensive lines to be able to compete in the trenches because uh, in terms of depth, it's just hard to compete with those, you know, those blue chip guys. And for Syracuse, biggest key for them is being able to compete up front, and that will give them an opportunity and everywhere else in the field. Yeah, the offensive line is definitely number one for me. I mentioned Chris Bleich earlier, 6'6", 330, redshirt freshman from Florida. Um he would he would check that box. Whether he could play next year is a question. Uh, Dan Mullen said that his transfer was related to a family issue. He's from Pennsylvania, so maybe he could get that family hardship waiver and and play next year. Um, I mean, that's probably maybe that's a bit of wishful thinking. You know, who really knows how the NCAA handles those? But yeah, I think you got to bring in uh, at least one offensive lineman. Maybe Darius Tisdale develops after you know having a year here. The JUCO the JUCO guard tackle they picked up last year um but frankly they're returning four starters and and sam heckle who they expected to be a starter this year i haven't seen or heard anything that makes me think he's going to be ready for spring or you know there's to me there's not a lot of optimism around in that situation although no one really wants to share any on the record information but yeah i think they're going to need to go out and get a couple of bodies there and if you can get someone like blight who has he started eight games this year before before being passed there's a reason he's he's leaving uh, maybe in addition to that family reason you know i i think that will go a long way you cannot have another ryan alexander situation and um what goes hand in hand with that is the staff changes right so dino is doing a lot of the recruiting uh these next couple weeks is Mike Cavanaugh, the offensive line coach, going to be there? He actually has a relationship with Bleich, having recruited him to Nebraska out of high school. So, uh, again, every one of these recruitments, and Cade Fortin, for instance, the former North Carolina quarterback who's, who's transferring and enrolling in January, he's down to three schools, Syracuse, Kansas, and Vanderbilt. Uh, according to 24-7 Sports, Dino and Kirk Martin went to visit him. Kirk Martin, the quarterback's coach. Is Kirk Martin going to be here? Dino's been very hands-on in that recruitment. So, uh, you know, those are two specific names to watch, but when I look at kind of overall roster depth, the only position that couldn't use an experienced guy is really running back and, I guess, special teams. You've got Andre Schmidt, and then James Williams is a high schooler coming in who is expected to replace Sterling Hoffrichter at punter. But the offensive line, quarterback, even wide receiver, you lose Sean Riley. And, and I don't know who's ready to step in there. Ed Hendricks has been hurt since he got here about a year and a half ago. I think he's someone with a huge ceiling, but he hasn't been able to stay healthy. Is it Cam Jordan? Do you move Tristan to the slot and bring in an outside guy? Do you keep Tristan out wide and plug Courtney Jackson in, a freshman who they liked but never really got a chance to, to show what he could do this year? Um, defensive line, you're graduating three starters. You could really use... Some help there. Again, linebacker we already talked about could use an experienced body. And, and, and same thing in, in the defensive backfield. So, um, yeah, I think graduate transfers and, and transfers who are going to petition for immediate eligibility are really important. Um, you know, otherwise, from a, a strictly a depth perspective, they lost a lot of defensive linemen and secondary players this year, and they actually just got a, a decommitment. Charles Bell the sixth, a three-star safety from Maryland, decommitted. He's been offered by South Carolina and West Virginia since he committed to SU a few months ago. So, um, yeah, it's a really important time. Honestly, it's I think it's gonna be it's gonna be hard. 
You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, Dino saying, oh, well, you know, we're bringing this guy in and that guy in, but it's not official yet. It's not public yet. And he's really going to have to sell his vision for, for Syracuse football in 2020. Whatever that is, whoever those coaches are, um, it's it's really a challenging time for him, I believe. Um, good question. Sophista Ratchet, recruiting targets for the cycle. We just hit on. What are your early depth chart projections for next spring? Uh... Kind of hard to say. I mean, backup quarterback is interesting if you don't get Cade Fortin. I think Rex Culpepper is probably ahead of David Summers, but I, I don't think that's a that's a quarterback room they're really happy with depth-wise. Um, you know, so I think they'd still look to add someone there after the early signing period, be it in the summer or whatever the case may be. Um, I think Abdul Adams is clearly your guy at, at running back with Jarvion Howard and Joar Jordan. I'd love to see more Joar Jordan. Maybe he gets some run in the slot. you got to get the ball in his hands for sure. Um, we already talked about the offensive line. I think you got your core four guys. If you can get Bleich, he, he comes in and can replace Evan Adams at guard. Um, we touched on the defensive line. I think Kingsley Jonathan, Josh Black, um, they get McKinley Williams back. He plans to come back. Yeah, he, he redshirted this year, um, playing in only three games, I believe, after suffering that uh, foot injury at the start of preseason camp. Um, linebacker we touched on, and defensive back we touched on too. So it's really hard to predict this early on. You know, We don't know who the coaches are. We don't know who all the players are. Um, but that's definitely something we'll be monitoring. I usually do. Uh, a, a pre-spring depth chart and a post-spring depth chart and all that kind of stuff. I understand the uh, the interest there. It's it's a little too far out to be able to tell. Uh, John Adair, have you heard any rumors about who's in the running for the new DC? No, <laughs> frankly, if I'm just being <laughs> honest, no. Um, you know, we've talked about Brian Norwood. Uh, overlapped with Dino in, in at Hawaii in 1984. Then he was the DC at Baylor. Uh, well, Dino was there for most of his time, and he's currently the co-defensive coordinator at Navy. Um, he's four-two-five base with three-four principles is how it's kind of described. Aggressive scheme. Um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Nate Mink, my colleague, wrote about it a little bit earlier, I think a few weeks ago, and he said, the, the, to quote, the whole concept is based on organized chaos with the objective being to confuse the heck out of the quarterback and offensive linemen. So we'll see. I, I really think Dino's casting a wide net there. I think he is open to bringing in whoever he thinks the best candidate is, and I do think he'll take his time there. Um, Offensively, like I, like I mentioned earlier, and I think we'll touch on this a little more farther down, I think he's got a smaller pool. He wants to bring in guys who have familiarity with his system. Dino, Dino's burner. <laughs> Early prediction for next year's record. You know, you know that's pretty much impossible. Uh, extremely favorable out-of-conference schedule, even with Rutgers getting Shiano. I think we go 4-0. I'm inclined to agree, even after what happened this year. It's just hard to pencil in a loss to Liberty, who lost uh, Buckshot Calvert, its quarterback, and Antonio Gandy-Golden, who is a legitimate NFL receiver. Uh Assuming we hire a competent DC, it has to be no less than seven and five. I love it, Dino. Already going, already saying you're going to win at least eight. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can say that. Uh, I guess maybe. I, it's it's the same, really the same thing as last year in the sense that it's hard to imagine them not making a bowl. But I can't just go out and predict like nine and three again after last year. Like if everything goes right, I think the offense could be very good. I think Tommy DeVito is put in a bad situation this year. He was still very, very efficient. 19-5 to touchdown-to-interception ratio. Didn't have a running game until the last three weeks of the season when half of his body was basically falling apart. Uh, so I guess I am going to say 7-5 and five on this very unofficial 
prediction. Do you, do you have any thoughts, Julian, as we're nine months from the start of the season? <laughs> yep. So uh, my initial thought for this year's team was that we were at a fork. They were going to be either really, really good or really, really bad. But I leaned, as most everyone should know, leaned very heavily towards really, really good. I was one of the few people saying, or really, I was kind of with everybody, but it was much more vocal. This team's going to be great. Ten wins. Uh, DeVito's highs. You know, I was fully on board with this year's team, very excited about the potential and uh, future of Syracuse football, yet for them to fall apart uh, due to a number of things. Uh, when it comes to looking at a football team nine months in advance, um, it's tough because obviously they don't have a coordinator yet. I don't know what kind of staff and scheme they're going to put together. Um, I don't know <clears throat> how DeVito comes back next year. Obviously he was uh, productive and efficient, uh, but I don't know if, if the poor offensive line hurt or helped the development. Um, so I, I can't think of a philosophy in terms of will they be really good or really bad. I don't have that yet, but – in terms of where I think this football team could could sit, um, I do believe that six, a, a six and six, seven and five, six to eight wins uh, will make make sense. So I'll sit right in the middle with you, uh, Stephen, at seven and five, just because I think that this team has the talent to make a bowl game like they did this year, um, and I also believe that with the coaching changes. Uh, they will be on their best behavior in terms of getting the most out of their guys, knowing how changes have been these last couple of years. So um, I think that they'll they'll try to make the most of their talent. I think that they have the talent to do so. So a bowl game is certainly possible. And I think they'll be able to carry that uh, a little beyond the minimum of six games. So I'll give them seven and five uh, for now, and then as things develop, we'll we'll make some adjustments if need be. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Georgia Tech. Pretty soft crossover opponent as you're going to get, frankly. BC fired yep. Steve Adazio, so new coaching staff there. We'll see what the rebuild looks like. If, if you're going with a, a pretty different scheme, then I think there might be some real personnel clashing there. Uh, Florida State obviously bringing in a new head coach as well, which will affect what they look like and, and also maybe what Syracuse looks like, which ties into Doc mm-hmm. Fernald's question, who will be the QB coach next year and who will be the QB sitting in that room? Love listening to you guys this year. Hopefully you can do more breaking down the coaching changes and recruiting class. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. It's, it's exciting to kind of have a core group of listeners, so it's, it's been a fun community to experience this year, and, yeah, hopefully we can, uh, we can keep it going. Um, I don't know if this is plan A, but I think it, one of the more optimal scenarios is Kendall Bryles, and, and that obviously comes with uh, some public scrutiny. Um, but I think Dino really wants uh, another another idea man in the room. I think I think the play calling got fairly stale, and you know maybe Mike Lynch wasn't in the easiest position. I think they need someone else in that room who's bringing ideas forward. And Kendall has play calling experience. He obviously knows the system intimately, um, and he has he has experience working with quarterbacks. So he's an option uh, farther down the experience board. I know they, you know, Matt Johnson worked here. I believe he was a quality control coach at Kent State this year, but someone who knows what he's doing and um, probably fits the budget. <laughs> so those are two yeah. kind of early thoughts uh, as far as who the quarterbacks will be. Um, you know, if they don't get Cade Fortin, I'm not sure exactly where they'll try to go. 
it might have to be another high school guy. Um, they missed on their early season targets, um, one of which went to Miami in Tyler Van Dyke, and the other one in Christian Valu reclassified to 2021. Um, they're still recruiting him in that cycle, but yeah, there's no if you miss on Cade Fortin, there's no easy answer. We'll see again. Kansas, Vanderbilt, and Syracuse, the three schools he's reportedly down to, uh, according to 24/7. But he also said he's open to open to calls. His phone is not off, so. We shall see. We'll, we'll have news on that pretty soon, within a couple weeks. Uh, Jason Plato, no question, but hope you guys do the podcast again next year. Really enjoyed listening to them. Thanks so much. We appreciate you listening. Uh, Jack Hughes, first time, long time. Julian, what defensive scheme do you think would best suit the existing players and their strengths? Mm, um, you know, this is, this is going to be uh, poor because you've already seen it, but in terms of what Syracuse already has, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the 4-2 nickel look that Syracuse is already in. Um, one, uh, more so, and I'm sitting here from a, a safety defensive back perspective. I'm looking at the secondary, and I love the idea of having Trill at the nickel, um, Iffy on the outside, filling the other spot, and then uh, figuring out what you have on the back end with uh, Andre Sisco and I think and Coley uh, there at safety or maybe and again I'm advocating at this point but Cam Jonas someone like that there um, I think that they have the talent on the back end to utilize five defensive backs and then when it comes to your your linebackers and your defensive front um, I, I really enjoy the idea of having uh, four four to six guys because you can become multiple fronts here you can uh, mix up odds and odd and even fronts, just not just meaning you can mix up having guys in an odd number of gaps versus an even number of gaps uh, across the offensive line, if that makes sense, trying not to get too tech- technical there. Uh, but I just think it gives Syracuse a lot of mobility in terms of what kind of uh, offenses they'll, they'll face, and I think it gives them uh, a, a fair counter with that kind of defense. And I think they have the talent. They've already been in it. They've recruited for it. Um, they wouldn't have to deviate very much from their old recruiting philosophies in terms of this is what you, we can get out of you in this position. Uh, but it also allows you to open up into other things, uh, which I believe are quote-unquote modern ideas. Here, I think having a three-three-five, those that three-three-five defense, while it was in Schaefer's defense, I think it's popular over uh, with that, who was it, West Virginia back in the day. Um, I'm not sure mm-hmm. who runs it today very often, but I do know it's been part of uh, a LSU Saban defenses at Alabama where you, again, with the, uh, like the 4-2 in the nickel formations, you just can create so many different fronts and you can bring blitz packages from just about anywhere. And I've just noticed uh, in terms of just modern football, finding ways to utilize speed and finding ways to match up and create mismatches from a defensive perspective. Uh, that three three five is a lot like the spread offense. It's a, it's a spread defense in terms of just having so much speed to bring pressure and such. So being able to utilize that and, and mix packages and mixing up your personnel, um, I think that's a, the, a key for Syracuse. And it may, it may not be these things. Uh, you know, Coach Babers and whoever he brings in may decide, that we can fit things better. But just from my perspective, the one thing for Syracuse is being able to mix up their defensive packages. And in those two scenarios, the nickel and the 3-3-5, three, three, 
I think it matches up very well with the kind of offenses you see in the ACC these days, uh, them being spread offenses uh, with so much speed on the outside. And I'm stealing from Clemson here as well. They do a very similar thing where I think they're in a 4-2 base with the nickel package behind it, and they mix into a 3-3-5. And I think they play some of the best defense in the country. Uh, obviously, they have so much talent, but I think that they're – uh, formations have been modernized, and I think that their defensive philosophy is going to be something that takes over across college football because it works so well and it allows them to utilize their players in such a fashion that they become dominant and really the top team in college football these days. Last few here. Joe Bruce, any chance of demoting Mike Lynch and replacing him with a Matt Luke, Kendall Bryles, etc.? I do. I think Lynch probably stays on staff. He's one of the better recruiters. I would say Nick Monroe is clearly their top recruiter. Reno Faree's done some nice work in the DMV area. Uh, Mike Lynch and I believe Pennsylvania and Canada, solid recruiter, someone who's obviously close with Dino. Could I see him going to co-OC or maybe even just running backs coach? Yeah, it's definitely possible. I think it depends on who you can get. Um but yeah, Matt Luke doesn't make sense to me. I really think they want to bring in someone with familiarity with the system. All right, Kyle Nabawanik, thank you for the email, Kyle. I, I appreciate the kind words and the pronunciation. I feel much better knowing that I hopefully just said your name correctly. Uh, <laughs> since, since it's been a different linebacker group every year since Franklin and Bennett graduated, who do you think will start the position, and how do you think they'll be as a group next season? Um, we kind of touched on this already. To me, I think Michael Jones is probably going to be in there. And, and I'll say Juan Wallace, um, I, I think it's really going to be contested, more so than the last two years. Brian Ward was a guy who kind of he opened it up, but I think he was always leaning toward his seniors, Kyle Whitner and Ryan Guthrie, two years ago, and then Lakeem Williams and Andrew Armstrong. So, no seniors. <laughs> so, it's, it's certainly not going to be the same. Going to be a different person making the decisions, obviously, but, um, you know, I think I think Michael's work ethic, his reliability, and he, he can hit, too. Maybe he isn't quite as powerful as Koba and, and Canton, but I think he plays with a little more control from what I've seen. So to me, he's probably the guy, I mean, this is no surprise, he played the most this year, who's best suited to start. And then Juan Wallace is two years under his belt. Um, but I, I really think they're all going to get a shot. And frankly, again, I would not be surprised if they brought in a Juco or a grad transfer or both. So we shall see, and, and we'll see how many um, – players leave the program and how that affects the scholarship situation all right last one christian leogran top three players to watch for in 2020 yes about staff changes too but we kind of we kind of touched on that uh, it's hard to predict to me exactly who is going to go i think your lesser recruiters are more likely to go i think whoever the defensive coordinator coming in and who they want to bring in will affect who stays on that side of the ball and who dino can get with system familiarity will affect who, who stays on the offensive side of the ball but top three players to watch for in 2020 i figure we can each do this one. I'll give you my three. Tristan Jackson, coming off a 1,000 uh, receiving yards year. I think he's really, really good. He just didn't get a ton of opportunity. No, he wasn't perfect. He had a couple drops, but uh, hard worker, great catch radius, um, and someone who has a good rapport with Tommy DeVito. So, to me, he's number one. Andre Sisco, um, the guy just erases mistakes. Like, for all the issues that they have on defense, if you intercept, well, I don't know what he has, like 12 balls over two years, like that, you have all these little mistakes, and then you have a few 
really, really good play. It outweighs so many of the other mistakes made by him and, and everyone around him. Um, and then a third player to watch in 2020. Who haven't we talked about yet? I'm going to say Aaron Service. Um, uh, he should finally be playing tackle for a full year next year. This is a guy who's probably supposed to be playing tackle each of the last two seasons. He calls it more of his natural position, I think, based on his body type. And I, frankly, I think the public just hasn't seen how good he can be out there. Extremely athletic. I think he has the potential to be one of the ACC's better tackles. And, you, you know, we saw how detrimental the offensive line was to Syracuse's production this year. I think just having him at left tackle is going to go a long way, and it's going to allow maybe Syracuse to understand where they're going to be attacked and then how to protect it. If you can just leave him alone out there and know you don't have to be worried about maybe the overload on that side as much, you can you can focus on Dakota Davis and Matthew Bergeron on the right side. So those are my three guys to watch. What are you thinking, Julian? Uh, so my first guy, and this is going to be, okay, everybody's going to roll their eyes. Dwyer, shout out. I'm going to give it to Cam <laughs> Jonas only because, you know, I know, I know what the laugh is. I, the Dwyer guy, Julian, relax. But I, I, I am genuinely excited to see uh, if he can secure a starting spot or not. If he doesn't, ignore this pick. But I, I truly believe if he is, has gotten himself in terms of recovery. I know just, you know, from personal relationship that his ACL and knee thing has really bothered him and coming back was difficult. But if he has managed to overcome that, especially with the extra offseason and comes back in the spring, does what he's supposed to do, and he can secure a starting spot on defense, um, I think he's a true talent in addition to Syracuse only because of how, of how great he was coming in. Mind you, he was a blue-chip recruit, someone Florida State and Miami's and everyone else trying to get and somehow ended up in Syracuse. I, I think if he can find a way back and secures himself as a starter on defense, I think he'd be a real asset to Syracuse uh, in that strong state position. Um, and then uh, number two, looking for a receiver. Um, you know, I'll go with Tristan Jackson as well, just because of how great he was this year. Uh, I was hearing uh, two years ago when he was a transfer, he is the best athlete on our team right now and that was that was just from inside starting to leak out a little bit and i'm like oh really finally got a chance to see him play i'm like okay i see it i get why uh, i think he'll end up moving into the slot like you do steven in terms of what they'll do on offense because of what they're losing in the slot uh but i think that he'll be someone as, as well uh, with tommy devito that connection i think is really going to grow next year uh, especially, I don't know what happened to Taj Harris this year, but I think that the connection is going to be Tristan Jackson and uh, Tommy DeVito, and I, I really expect that to grow into uh, another all-ACC season um, with even some consideration for All-American just because of what Syracuse's offense is and the receivers that have gone through this program and what they've become. Uh, and then finally, uh, last guy, Steven, and this, this is very poor on my part. I'm stealing one of your guys. Steven, the running back, I just lost his name. Uh, Jawar Jordan? Uh, the kid. Jamar, yes, Jordan. Uh, I think he's going to be someone as well for Syracuse just because that running back room is going to change. Uh, I've I loved his speed and, and what I've seen from him this year. Uh, I, I thought that he was a cat. If he can add some weight, uh, I think that he's someone who uh, is going to do really well for Syracuse just from the running back perspective. And then the other thing, uh, for whatever reason, and this is like an internal thing, just a football guy, uh, has nothing to do with really truly being on the field, but I've always noticed that 
when it comes from, if you are a freshman who played, and it's just every program I've, I've seen, if you're a freshman who played and for whatever reason you were underweight or you like just didn't need to be on the field, but you did, your confidence just skyrockets. I've noticed, I've noticed it with so many different guys. Uh, just in their demeanor and how they play, how they practice, their confidence skyrockets so much. And then all of a sudden, they pop in their sophomore year because they're just so much more comfortable with the offense. All they had to do in the offseason was work on their bodies. Mentally, they're already there because they've played, they've gotten reps, they've been with the first and second team. They know how the offense runs or the defense runs. Um, and then they hit the ground running and become great players. That happened for me my sophomore year. Even without starting, it, it just happened for me. I mean, I've seen it for so many different guys where they just all of a sudden pop. Zaire Franklin was another one who did this. Uh, I, I just really believe that uh, Jordan, I think he'll have a great year just because of uh, the, the minimal amount of snaps he has a freshman. I think he'll be able to carry that into his sophomore year and, and really become something special uh, for Syracuse. I think Moniel... Uh, did this in a very similar fashion. He was a small cat when he started. All of a sudden, he's one of these thicker running backs coming out from Syracuse. So uh, I'm looking forward to SU's running game, and I think Jordan's going to be a large part of it. Yeah, Jawar is going to be fun to watch. Even this spring, I think if he can get his pass protections down too, that'll go a long way toward getting him on the field. But Yeah, all right, guys. Thanks for all the great questions. Really, really um, good list today. I appreciate all that. Thanks, as always, for listening to us. If you haven't yet, please go subscribe, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you listen to your podcasts on. If you'd like to purchase advertising, please contact Dylan Carpenter at 315-470-6069. We will be back in some fashion to talk about the early signing period. Thanks.